That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SubChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin. S&P became the last of the three major international credit ratings companies to downgrade China's sovereign debt, citing concerns over growing economic and financial risks facing the country from a prolonged borrowing binge. S&P cut China's long-term sovereign credit rating by one notch, now ranking China the same as that of countries such as Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Czechia, which is now the way you say the Czech Republic, FYI. The downgrade reflects our assessment that a prolonged period of strong credit growth has increased China's economic and financial risks, the S&P statement said. S&P's decision followed a Moody's announcement in May of downgrade of China's sovereign credit, Fitch lowered the country's local currency rating in 2013. Sovereign ratings reflect a country's creditworthiness, and a cut can raise the cost of borrowing for the government and companies both at home and overseas. Last week, China's rail operator increased the maximum speed to 215 miles per hour for some trains running between Beijing and Shanghai. The speed bump cut the time it takes to travel between the two cities to as little as four and a half hours. Although it still takes two hours less to fly between the two cities, long distances between airports and city centers and frequent flight delays have dampened some passengers' enthusiasm for air travel. There is evidence that high-speed rail steals passengers from airlines, but experts said that in China, bullet trains are likely to only challenge airlines for journeys that are shorter in distance. Google will pay $1 billion for assets related to its long-time collaboration with smartphone manufacturing partner HTC, providing a needed boost to the struggling Taiwan company. Google and HTC have a long-running relationship in smartphones, an area that Google has tried to build up originally through its Nexus brand, and more recently through its higher-end Pixel line. HTC manufactured the earliest Nexus One model, which came out in 2010, and is also a partner for Google's higher-end Pixel phones. Google said the HTC investment is part of a long-term plan for development of the Pixel brand, which it hopes can someday compete with high-end market leaders like Apple, Samsung, and fast-rising Chinese rival Huawei. Online travel giant Ctrip has opened its first offshore call center in the UK, nearly a year after making its first major overseas purchase of British flight news provider Skyscanner. 
The new centre, located in the Scottish city of Edinburgh, will eventually house as many as 200 English speakers to complement the thousands of call centre staff C-Trip already has in China. But most of C-Trip's business still comes from Chinese tourists heading abroad, so its new English-speaking call centre will remain a small, quote-unquote, pretty immaterial, long-term project, a company source told Caixin. Two teachers in China's Hunan province will no longer face punishment for refusing to do a quiz on their city's National Civilized City campaign. The Suxian District Education Bureau in the city of Chenzhou had previously decided to dock the teachers' pay, but changed its mind after a torrent of online criticism over the authorities' harsh decision. The National Civilized City program is a nationwide contest that Chinese cities can choose to participate in. The contest assesses cities according to 188 criteria, including socialist values and clean governance. The program also requires at least 90% of residents in a candidate city to be aware of their city's aspirations for the award. This awareness level is often gauged by city authorities who quiz local citizens and government employees. Local authorities in the Xiong'an New Area Economic Zone announced Tuesday that they will establish a point-based system supported by big data to allocate affordable rental properties to migrants. The points will be allocated based on factors like the length of time out-of-towners spend in Xiong'an and the contributions they make to the area, according to a statement on the official Xiong'an WeChat account. The Xiong'an New Area in central Hebei province became China's 19th National Economic Zone in April. It's only an 80-minute train ride from Beijing. Thanks, Ada. Let's hear from some of Caixin Global's writers and editors for a deeper dive into the week's news. First up is Doug Young, senior editor at Caixin Global. So, Doug, this week a logistics company called Best Inc., which is backed by the e-commerce giant Alibaba, raised $450 million in the largest IPO in the U.S. for a Chinese company this year. Uh, and the headline of the Caixin story says that its stock price jumped following an IPO price cut. Uh, I hear something kind of contradictory just in that headline, that the stock jumped, yes, but also that the IPO price had been slashed. So what is actually going on here? Okay, well, we did write jumps in the headline because the stock rose 5% on the debut, but I think people would probably call this more of a dead cat bounce, which is the term we use in, in stock markets when basically a stock has fallen so far that there's really no place else for it to go but up. Uh, the story with this particular company was, uh, it's called Best Logistics, and they had a big pedigree there. They, they've got Alibaba owns about a quarter of the company, and they filed for an IPO, God, it was probably about two months ago. Um, and it took a while, and I think we found out why it took a while is probably because they were having trouble drumming up support. Uh, but anyhow, as of a few weeks ago, probably a couple weeks ago, they were talking, actually probably even just a week ago, they were talking about raising a billion dollars, which, you know, is pretty ambitious. It would have been the biggest, uh, well, it was, it still was the biggest IPO in New York. But anyhow, in the end, they they just couldn't find the demand and they ended up slashing it and they ultimately only ended up raising $450 million and they also had to slash the IPO price uh, they were originally looking at thirteen to fifteen dollars per share, and they ended up cutting that to ten to eleven, and then at the end they only got ten. So they basically priced at the very, very bottom. So you can probably start to see why I'm calling it a dead cat bounce. Doug, what went wrong with this IPO then? Well, I think they just 
didn't read the market right, you know, and, and probably the underwriters, uh, and they had some big underwriter names on this one, they had Goldman Sachs, and I think City was on it, and maybe even Morgan Stanley, you'd have to go back and look, but they had some big names, but, you know, they just didn't, didn't read the market, is, is all you can say, and that goes on to the bigger picture story of, you know, just logistics is not, what is best is a company that does a lot of logistics, they like to build themselves as high tech logistics, but they still rely on, you know, mom and pop ordinary delivery services is a big part of their business. And that's just not a real hot area for uh, investors right now. It's a very cutthroat area. And I think these guys found out that uh, people aren't aren't that interested in investing in cutthroat areas. And, and then on top of everything else, Best is also losing money. They, they haven't ever made a profit. So that probably wasn't a huge turn on either. Great. Let's, let's move on to the next story, one with a, a bit of an ick factor. Uh, this is not the first time that Caixin has covered sex dolls, but uh, what's the story in particular here? Well, the story here is sort of somebody trying to get a little too entrepreneurial. And I have to add a, uh, I'll add a footnote later on that I, I sort of question whether or not this is really a shared economy trend anyhow. But the idea behind this whole brainstorm was there was a guy, or I shouldn't say a guy, a company that was operating an e-commerce site out of the, the South China city of Xiamen. And they you know, were selling lingerie and all sorts of other great sex stuff. And they got this great idea. Let's do a shared sex doll. And we won't get into too many of the details. So so anyhow, the people put down a big chunk of change as a deposit, and then they could get these sex dolls, you know, as often as they wanted. And I, I assume they paid probably by the day. And they were made out of silicone, which I don't know if you've ever felt silicone, sort of that spongy but firm material, you know, which probably is a big step up from the traditional plastic, uh, you know, and these, uh, presumably their audience were were guys who didn't have real life girlfriends, which you read a lot about in China. And that was going to be their target audience. So, and, and people were spinning it as a shared economy story, because China's like really, really into whole, all these shared economy concepts. They've gone way beyond Uber and and Airbnb and they're experimenting with all kinds of other shared things. So this was this was the latest and greatest in that trend. Sounds like a pretty dubious business endeavor. Uh, how did this take off and, and, and then come to the notice of law enforcement in China? Well, so what happened was, of course, uh, in China, people, somebody caught on to this and it took on a life of its own on the internet and, and a lot of people were... A few people, it sounded like, were, you know, Ooh, this sounds like a cool idea, but I think a lot of people maybe thought it was a little tasteless and maybe a step too far. And, you know, this is China also, where sex is still sort of a taboo subject or relatively taboo. It's certainly not as open as the West. Uh, but then apparently the icing on the cake was the police uh, nailed these guys. I didn't say nailed, but they were doing some sort of a public event to to promote these these uh, sex dolls and the police caught them and I don't know what they officially busted them for if it was an unauthorized promotion or maybe it was you know it didn't meet certain standards or whatever but they ended up closing down the promotion and also fining the company and I think that maybe was just the last straw Uh, you know between all the public controversy 
and the police fine and and everything else they probably just decided this isn't worth it and basically yanked the service after about a week well i must say that is a sad and premature climax to this story <laughs> let's talk about a third story lota uh, the Korean brand, to sell China stores as consumer ire smolders, uh, a business story with major political overtones. Uh, what's going on here, Doug? Well, this is a story that's been going on for quite a while, uh, probably at least the last six months. And it all dates back to when South Korea decided it was going to install this THAAD missile system, which is a U.S.-applied anti-missile system, actually, to protect itself from bellicose talk coming from North Korea. And that didn't sit well with Beijing, not not so much because Beijing doesn't believe South Korea has the right to defend itself, but apparently this anti-missile system has very strong radar capabilities that can see into China and, and Russia, you know, beyond the North Korean border. So China wasn't very happy. They thought that uh, this will, you know, this will give the U.S. and South Korea spying capabilities. So as we often see in Chinese fashion, uh, uh, political conflicts and political disputes often spill out into the business arena. And a big part of that is just because Chinese media are essentially, you know, very in bed with the government. Uh, in many ways, they're, they're like a propaganda tool of old days, although it's probably not that bad now. But anyhow, the, the media are very happy to jump into these sort of things and start saying all sorts of things about how China, you know, South Korea is doing bad things. And so that spills over into the business world. Chinese get upset. They stop buying Korean products. And in this case, uh, Latte is one of the biggest Korean retailers. They have a pretty big presence in China and their businesses were taking a hit, not only from consumers not coming in, but suddenly they found themselves getting inspected more and being closed down for safety violations and stuff, you know, just things that never would have happened before this. So uh, Latte just said these, they, they operate a, uh, several different concepts, but the ones that they're selling are these big hypermarkets. And, and they just said enough of this. They put them up on the market uh, because they were just getting killed by this crisis. Sounds like they were a pretty obviously motivated seller, and maybe under those circumstances, it might not have been all that easy to find a suitable buyer. Well, so what happened was they put these things up for sale, and no, it turned out that the offer prices they got were really you know, low-balling the, the real value of these things. Um, you know, There's two factors there, I think. One is that they knew this was a fire sale, the potential buyers, so they knew this was a fire sale, so... If Latte is really that eager to get rid of them, and Latte is a huge company, they're willing to you know write these things off and take a big loss. Let's lowball the offer. Uh, the second thing I think is probably these potential buyers realize these stores are going to be stigmatized when they get them. Uh, so that you know, even though they're taken over by, I think in this case, the one of the main bidders was a Thai company. So now they'll be Thai owned, which theoretically means that the Chinese won't boycott them anymore. But in Chinese consumers' minds, they'll still be latte stores. And, you know, so they'll they'll still continue to suffer until this, this whole business between China and Korea clears up. Lotte isn't the only Korean company that suffered as um, Sino-South Korean political tensions have heightened. Uh, we saw this with car companies like Hyundai and Kia as well, right? Uh, so... You have government intervention, you got media adding fuel to the fire, you have consumers 
really, you know, taking it on themselves to do the, the patriotic thing. What is the key factor here? Well, I think it's all encouraged by the government. You know, it's, it's, it all starts at the top. Uh, you know, Chinese government is like a very, it's, I wouldn't say the government orders people to do stuff, but the government does stuff knowing full well that the media will follow its lead, local governments will follow its lead, because China's like a very hierarchical, patriarchal system where sort of everybody wants to toe the central government's line. So, and the, the, the opposite is also true in cases where the government doesn't want stuff done they can very quickly step in and shut things down. So, for example, if China was having, and we saw this before, when China was having a conflict with uh, Japan or something and, and things got out of control, suddenly the media just blacks out. There's nothing, no coverage at all anymore. In that case, it was about the Diaoyu, Diaoyu Islands. Um, so I think in this case, it's, a, it's, a, it's you know, this sort of paternalistic uh, model in society where the government's the top dog, the, the central government in Beijing, uh, they take a stand on something and then everybody toes the party line. Doug, thanks again for talking to us and we will see you next week then. Okay. Thanks a lot, Kaiser. Next up is Raphael Huang. Uh, this is an interesting story you've got this week, Raphael. Definitely a, a rising interest in sports going on in China, but this is the first I've actually heard about this particular sport that you're writing about, open water swimming and its increasing popularity. Uh, what's the background here? What's driving the, the, the growth of open water swimming competitions in China? Open water swimming is a very wide range concept. People can swim in lake, river, and sea, it can also be uh, contests or events. Like in our story, there are many events held by the government by the uh, by some companies, uh, but there are also some contests like those held by our Chinese Swimming Association. Swimming in open water is much more common and accessible to everyone than running a marathon. So people enjoy posting about their sporting achievement on social media as well. And like in our story, the chairman of Soho, Charles Zhang, famous entrepreneurs like Charles Zhang and other business figures are often chain setters for new sports, helping boost consumer sentiments and bolstering the new high-end sport economy. The open water swimming cruise is partly triggered by the National Swimming Week launched by the China's top sports governing body, the General Administration of Sports in, in 2014. So over 120 open water swimming events were held across China last summer, and this year that number has even doubled. So what are some of the major problems with popularization of a new sport like open water swimming? Yes, actually it's proved by cases that swimming in open water can also be very dangerous. A professional swimmer died in the contest in 2006. In this year's Wuhan Yangtze River Swimming Festival, 12 of the 15 female swimmers were swept downstream and had to be rescued by lifeguards. So at this moment, the China, uh, China does not have concrete regulations on mass events. China is still at a very early stage and standardization is an urgent priority, especially as the sports goes mass scale.
Chinese Swimming Association says it's preparing a set of national rules for the sports and mass events to protect swimmers and pave the way for further development of supporting the industries. And we have interviewed another person, is a professional swimmer from Beijing Sports University. Zhang Jian said that the rules will come soon, but it can take another two to four years for review, improvements, or other localization. Raphael, sports, of course, is big business in China these days. So give us a sense for just, well, how, how big it's getting and, and how swimming fits into this growth. Well, China's state council rolled out a very ambitious plan in 2014 to boost the country's sport economy to 5 trillion yuan by 2025. It represents a 50-fold surge in just over a decade. There is a city called Xincheng where Charles Zhang swam across the strait in Liaoning province. Last year produced 40% of all swimwear sold in China and 20% of that sold globally. China's average household expenditure has doubled in the past two years, but the spending on sports still represents only one-tenth of the global average. People aged 40 to 60 years tend to spend more on swimming, according to a recent study by the JD Big Data Academy and Nielsen. It should be big business, especially when the events come across with e-commerce. Thanks for talking to us, Raphael. Thank you, Kaiser. That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com with your feedback. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SubChina and is produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out the Seneca Podcast, the current affairs show that I host with Jeremy Goldcorn, and follow the news from China every day at SubChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care.